Well, what a beautiful family. What a joy to be able to pray over Jeremy and Maria and little Jeremy and, and Jaden uh, and Joshua. Please continue to pray for them uh, as they raise that little guy. And uh, what a joy just to be able to do that today. So I hope you're encouraged by that. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles today to the book of Micah. It's a prophetic book in the Old Testament. Uh, it's just a few chapters long, so you might have to look for it a little bit. Uh, of course, the passages are also available in the notes section, uh, or uh, we'll also display them on the screen at the appropriate time. So Micah chapter 6, we, we are in the midst of a series as a church entitled God Is, and we've been asking throughout 2020, who is God? Such an important question for us to ask, because in order to understand ourselves and understand the world around us, we have to know who God is. And we can't just rely on what we pick up here and there from other sources, from from the, the home that we grew up in uh, to to even just our own church experience. What we have to do is press in for ourselves into the word of God, asking the question, God, who are you? And, and know this, that God will reveal himself, who he is, his nature and character to us. And so this is not just informational. This is not just nice to know. These are foundational parts of our faith and our walk with the Lord. Knowing who God is, is foundational. It's our marching orders, uh, as it were. It is our, 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 our guide to how we live this Christian life. If we do that apart from God, I guarantee you we're going to get it wrong. And so we need to pull back and say, who is God? And then beyond that, we need to, as the church, as believers, ask that question, who is God? Because it will inform what we're called to do and what we're called to be. And those two are really important distinctions, who we're called to be and then what we're called to do out of our being. See, we're called to be doers of the word. First Corinthians 4.20 says this, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And if you know anything in the world that we live in, there's a lot of people who talk a lot and that's all they seem to do is talk. And that, that reaches to every facet of the world we live in all the way from government to media and entertainment and even in the church. See, the, the, the kingdom of God is not about talking. It's about power. It's about the dunamis power of God, the, the Holy Spirit power of God flowing through his people, even as we just celebrated Pentecost Sunday a couple of Sundays ago, that, that moment in history when the Spirit of God and the power of God came upon that small group of people in that upper room, and they became the church. They became this force in the world, this force of good, this force of blessing, this force of of sharing the message of salvation. See, it's not a matter of talk, but of power. And then 1 John 3 verse 18 says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That we are called to love, not just with our words, we are called to love in what we do in and through our lives. 
So this morning, I want to take a look at this passage out of Micah chapter 6. You might have seen Micah 6, 8 posted on social media over the last few weeks. uh, And the theme of justice that has been a part of the conversation surrounding uh, racism and, and injustice in the world. And it's an important passage of scripture. It was important then, and it's important for us today. And I want to take a look at this passage It's a timely word for us as the church. So I'm going to read out of the New King James Version this morning, starting in verse 6. It says this, What shall I come uh, before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then God replies, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah was an Old Testament prophet who wrote, uh, or rather said these words that are now recorded for us in a very difficult time uh, and a difficult season for the nation of Israel. In fact, at this time, Israel would have been a divided kingdom with Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. So the Israelites themselves were divided amongst themselves. And uh, they they were at war. There was all kinds of factions. Um, they had both been ruled by corrupt kings who did not do right in the sight of the Lord. And, and despite the favor and promises of God, over them as a nation, they had sold out to a lie. They had sold out to a lie that said that they could be self-sufficient, that they could pursue whatever their their hearts desired and lay hold of it, whether it was the, the wealth of other nations or the gods of other nations, the customs of other nations. They decided, we'll just go ahead and do whatever makes us happy and, and not pay attention to what God would say. Uh, they, they, they did whatever it took to get ahead. They would treat people badly. They would lie, cheat, and steal. And there had become great disparity in the nation between those who were wealthy and those who were poor. And you see, they had bought into the lie of the enemy. A lie, the same, the same lies really that originated in the Garden of Eden. The same liar who told Adam and Eve that they could be like God if they ate of the fruit. The same liar who convinced Cain to kill his brother Abel because of the jealousy in his heart. See, the same liar who has been lying from the foundations of the earth, from that moment where Satan fell and has tried to deceive man from serving God, from looking to God to be his all. That Satan continues to, to be the one, as the Bible says, is that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That he is a liar, that he is the father of lies, and that those lies seek to undermine 
the children of God, those who were made in God's image. In fact, in speaking of Cain and Abel, God says to Cain in Genesis 4, 7, he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. What, a, what an amazing picture that God uses here. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. That sin and evil, and as Paul says in the New Testament, the elemental forces of this world are not just some ethereal, nebulous, intangible uh, reality that, that is just, it sounds like a story that these are part of the realities of the world in which we live. That sin, that the forces of, of evil are crouching and are waiting to, to destroy, to devour, to, 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 to devour and, and, and they desire to have you. And God's word to, to Cain is you must rule over it. You can't give in to those lies. Fast forward a, a couple thousand years and we find Israel now in a place where they have given into the lies. They've believed the lies of the enemy and traded the promises of God for these lies. And it is ripping them apart as a nation. In fact, it's the same liar that Jesus refers to in John chapter 10, when he says that the thief, the liar, the enemy, Satan comes only to steal, kill and destroy. But then Jesus says, I have come that they or you may have life and have it to the full. So the goal of the enemy is to destroy, it's to devour, it's to undermine, it's to put people against each other. It's, it's to elevate the systems of this world over the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, I have come. I have come that you might have life and that you would have it to the full, that life in the kingdom of God, a life surrendered to God is, is access to the fullness that comes with knowing God. The lie will always leave us empty, but the truth of who Jesus is will always fill us to overflowing. So here the prophet Micah to get back to Micah six the prophet Micah brings a prophetic warning to both kingdoms, to Israel and Judah. And it's a warning of God's judgment upon them, that God's not okay to just let them keep going the way that they're going. He's not okay with the way things have gone. This is not his desire for his people. This is not his desire for the people that he established, for the nation that he rescued out of slavery, that he rescued out of Egypt, that who he, he leads them into this promised land. The place they're in is not the place that he intended for them to be. And so he raises up prophetic voices like Micah's that bring this word. And it's not a gentle rebuke. If you read the book of Micah, which I encourage you to do, Read the things that he writes, read the things that God brings, the indictments he brings against his people. He confronts the sin in the land. He confronts the sin in the land. And more than that, he confronts the sin in the people. See, God is a just God. He is a just God. 
that he is not okay with unrighteousness and sin. He is not okay with the lies that we would believe from the enemy any more than he was okay for the people of Israel to believe those things. And so he, he confront, confronts rather the sin in the land. We have to confront the sin in the land. We have to confront the sin in us. That God would come to us and say, what are the things that are in your heart that need to be exposed, that need to come, come, come into the light? And so the response of the people, as Micah writes, is this, well, with what shall I come before the Lord? And there's this almost snarky, sarcastic tone to what Micah writes here in, in speaking of the people, their response to the people. Well, should I come with offerings and, and sacrifices? They're, they're not asking genuinely. In fact, kind of the tone here is, God, you're expecting too much of us. You're expecting, your expectations are too high. We can't do the things that you're asking us to do. So of course, they're still living under the sacrificial system. And the response of the people, as Micah records it, is this. So do we need to bring a thousand rams? Or do we need to have rivers of oil? And they're kind of throwing back in the face of God his invitation to examine their own hearts. God, there's just no way. Almost like, a, you know, there's no pleasing you. There's no making you happy. It doesn't matter what we do. And this is where we find the response of the Lord. Actually, let me pause there for a second. I want to make this statement. Religious systems do not impress God. For, for these people, it was offerings and sacrifices, not necessarily something that we can relate to. We don't have a sacrificial system. But religious systems do not impress God. And so what does that look like in our time? Well, it doesn't matter if we have structures and buildings and worship teams and, and, and we do all kinds of things in the name of the Lord or for the Lord. If they're missing these next things that we're going to talk about, those are not impressive to God. He's not impressed by the things that maybe we're even impressed with. Again, here in, in Micah, it's thousands of rams and rivers of oil. Those things don't matter to the Lord. He's looking at something Deeper. In fact, in 1 Samuel 15, 22, we find uh, Samuel here confronting uh, Saul after he had brought an offering to the Lord that God had not approved, that he was supposed to wait for Samuel. And, 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 and Saul just felt like, I can do this on my own. I don't need the prophet. I don't, I don't need the priest. I don't, I'm just, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. And he became kind of the, the captain of his life. And after making this offering, this is what Samuel says to him in verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. See, God's not looking for us to go through the motions. He's not looking for us to, to, to do the religious actions. What he's saying is, 
I want hearts that are obedient to me. I want hearts that are surrendered to me. I want people who would obey my words, listen to what I say, and then live those things out. See, the kingdom of God is not about words. It is about power. That we're not called to love in word, but we're called to love in action, in the things that we do. So let's get back to our text. So this is the response that Micah records. It says this, he has shown you, oh man. He has shown you, oh man, or, or mankind or people. He has shown you, what has he shown you? What is good and what does the Lord require? You know, this phrase, he has shown you. When you've shown someone something, if you've, you've presented it to them, you've told them about it, and then they go, I don't remember. And you have to remind them and you have to remind them. What, what, what God is saying here is, I, I haven't kept this a secret. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, you realize that none of what he says here was hidden from them. It was all very plain and things that God had expressed through the prophets, through, through the judges, through Moses, through Abraham, all throughout, God had made himself known, his heart known. So this is, there's really no excuse. He has shown you, oh man. What has he shown you? What is good? What is good? And goodness here is, is just not like, oh, that's, that's good. That's, that's nice. I, I kind of like that. No, the good here is the goodness of God. It is the good that God approves of. Not the good that I approve of, the good that God approves of. And can we just agree for a second that, that those can be two very different things. When I go, oh, that's good enough. And God says, no, that's good. That could look very differently. I could settle for a standard that's much lower when it comes to his kingdom and living righteously. And so what is good? What God approves of in my life and then the next step is this, what does the Lord require? Not what does he request or what sounds like a good idea or, hey, if this is convenient for you or you can fit it into your schedule or somehow, some way. He says, no, what does the Lord require? What is he expecting of us? God's expectations of us. Deuteronomy 10, 10 verse 12. This is one of the places where God makes clear what he's expecting, what he's showing us. It says this, now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to observe your, the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Wow. Right at the beginning of Israel being a nation, this is the declaration God says. I, I, I want you to fear me. I want you to walk in obedience to me. I want you to love me. I want, I want you to serve me with all of your heart and all of your soul and everything that you have and to observe my commands and decrees. You know Why? Because if you do, it will be for your own good. That it will be a blessing to you. Fast forward now to 
where we find Israel in the time of Micah. They have ignored those things. They've not walked in the fear of the Lord. They've not been obedient. They've not loved him and served him with all of their heart and soul. They've not observed his commands and decrees and their nation is falling apart. That their lives are not good. They're not doing well. God has this expectation. He has this, he has this, this command, this, this request of us, this, this, not more than a request says, listen, church, because this, this applies as much to us as it did to Israel. What is God asking of us? He's asking for our obedience, for our love, for us to serve him with every part. And Jesus reiterates these things. He, he, he even says, I didn't come to abolish those things. I, I came to fulfill them. I came to, I came to complete them and give you what you need to walk these things out. Why? For your own good. I've raised kids. Maybe you've raised children. And there's times where you punish or or discipline your kids. and, And you know that in that moment that it's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's not something you enjoy doing. But you know that it is for their good especially their long-term good, that you do those things. The same thing here with the heart of God towards us. So what are the three things? What are the three things that God calls us to? What are the three things that, that he calls Israel to? Well, they're these. First is this, do justly. Do justly. To do justly. Do the right thing, the right, fair, righteous, godly thing to do justly, not think about it or study it or observe it. Just simply do justice. I don't want you to offer thousands of rams and rivers of oil. I want you to do the right thing to live rightly to act out on it because it's not about words. It's about actions. Isaiah 1, 16 through 17 says this, wash your uh, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, Plead the case of the, the widow. We, we have this crystal clear picture into the heart of God right here by the, the, the prophet Isaiah. That we need to cleanse our lives, that we need to, to remove the unrighteousness, that we need to do what is right. Stop doing what is wrong. And, and in order to know that, we, know, we need to know what God says is right and wrong. Learn to do right. Why, why do I need to learn it? Because I don't know. And you don't know. I think it might be right, but it might not be right. And so I need to learn. You need to learn. We need to commit ourselves to the process of learning what is right. And then he says, seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of 
the widow. What, what God paints here is a picture of those that are the most vulnerable in the society to injustice. Seek justice for yourself. No, seek justice for those who cannot seek justice for themselves, for those who are oppressed, for those who are fatherless, for those who are widows, who are the people who are marginalized, who are the people on the fringes in our community and in our nation and in our world. That the, the, the word of God compels us to say, who are those people? And then we would seek justice that we would use the power that God has given us as servants of the most high by his Holy spirit to bring justice to those who do not have it. So again, don't just think about it or study or observe that we have to act. We have to know what pleases God. We have to know what breaks his heart and we have to then recognize those things in the world that do not fit or align with God's heart and his word. See, it's not enough to just know his word and commit it to our own hearts, but we need to look through the lens of his word, through his word at the world around us and say, what, what in our world does not align to God's heart and to his word? And then not just think about it, but to do something, to act, to move accordingly. That we are to do justly. See, this stands in contrast to the lies of Satan that says it's all about you. The lie of Satan would say this. You're not a part of the problem. You're not a part of the problem. You're you're okay. That we can look at our own lives right now as we, as we look at the issue and the sin of racism in our nation. It would be easy for so many of us to go, I- I'm good. I'm not, I'm not that. Without ever coming before the Lord and saying, God, would you seek, would, would you search my heart? Would you expose those things? Lord, show me in the places where I'm complicit where I've stood idly by and not said anything or not moved. And, and, I, and I have to say, this, in this moment in our, our history, the opportunity is to come against the lie and the, and the sin and the brokenness of, brokenness of racism in our nation. But it extends to so much more than that. That injustice exists in all manner of places in all manner of ways and that God calls us to be a part of the solution. His church is a part of the solution. We're not to be a part of the problem. See Israel, the sin that they had welcomed became a part of every facet of their lives from the palace to the village, to the field, to the road, to every part in government, in, 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 in culture, in society, and in their worship. We have to look and take a step back and say, God, would you show us? Would you reveal to us where we have failed to speak out in, in, against injustice in whatever form it takes? I remember a number of years ago, I was in the nation of Haiti and I was driving with my friend Benit in Port-au-Prince and 
uh, Port-au-Prince is, uh, rather Haiti is the, the most impoverished nation in the Western hemisphere, uh, a nation that is comprised predominantly of uh, African people, people who were brought from Africa as slaves and now find their home in, in this, just this, this nation that is, has been destroyed and, and wrecked in so many ways and recognizing that there's spiritual forces at work, but even, even economic things that, that the earthquake that hit that nation and, and there's extreme poverty that exists in this nation. My friend Beni, uh, along with others in that nation are on our campaign to bring revival and restore restoration to their nation. And so we're driving through Haiti, uh, through Port-au-Prince and there's just trash everywhere, just on the sides of the street and everywhere. And, um, and as we're driving, Benit sees this man take a water bottle and he finished drinking it and he threw it on the ground and kept walking in the midst of all of the trash. And I was, I was mortified because Benit pulls the car up, rolls the window down and starts yelling at the guy and says in, in Creole, I'm not understanding, but essentially I can understand the, the body language. And he says, Hey, don't just throw that on the ground. Don't just throw that on, on the ground, pick it up, find it, find a place that's appropriate to throw it. And I'll never forget. The man says, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And then turned around and went walking on his way in a street lined with garbage, trash everywhere, overflowing. Here's this one man who dropped one piece of garbage and his thinking was this, all of this was not my fault. Yet the one piece of trash that he dropped contributed to the problem overall. And Benit and I had an, a, an amazing conversation surrounding that and how a piece of garbage or a way of thinking or an attitude might seem insignificant by itself, but when put together with other attitudes and other ways of thinking and other policies and other systems, what it results in is a mess where people can stand back and we can go, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. But the responsible thing before the Lord to do is say, God, search me. Where do I fit? And again, this most certainly applies to racism, but it extends way beyond that. Every point of injustice and every point of brokenness in the world as the church that we have to step back and say, where do I fit in this? And what is my part? God, I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of your solution, your prophetic spirit empowered solution to the world around me. He then goes on to say this love mercy. So do justly, but then love, uh, love mercy, not just, he doesn't say, don't just show mercy. He says, be in love with being merciful, love being a merciful people. And, and the reason that we can resonate with that is that we are in the receiving end of mercy from the heart of God, that he has shown us great mercy. He has lavished his mercy and his love on us. And so God's call to us then is 
love mercy. Don't just be merciful, love being merciful, compassion, empathy, kindness, that we would look around at the people, look at the people around us and our hearts would be moved that we would be moved and even feel the pain of others, the agony and the struggle of others, that we wouldn't feel bad for them, that, that we would allow God to move us and to feel with them. See, Jesus felt the pain of the hurting and saw beyond the surface of what was going on. The crowd that he looked at and, and, and he recognized that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible says that he had compassion on them. There was this, this deep welling up from inside of him, this compassion that flowed out of him, this mercy to the two blind men on the road, that he had compassion and mercy on them and healed their blindness. The crowd that was hungry, that had been listening to him, the thousands on the hillside, he recognized that physically they were hungry and he had compassion and he fed them the power of compassion and mercy to transform lives is beyond what we can compare yet we have been on the receiving end of it luke chapter 6 20 verses 27 through 28 jesus says this to you who are listening i say let me stop there to you who are listening jesus says this in the midst of the sermon on the mount and, and it's interesting to me that he says these words to you who are listening, because there were a lot of people, but I think Jesus knew this. Not everyone was listening to what he had to say. Not everyone was paying attention. So he speaks specifically to those who would heed his words and hear his words. He says this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And then down in verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. I recently found out that this passage of scripture, these words of Jesus in the early church were the most quoted words of Jesus. Today it would be something like John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. And we love it. It's a great passage of scripture. But for the early church, their marching orders, their, the verse that they clung to was this. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. And I imagine it flowed out of the fact that they were hated. That they were persecuted that they were mistreated and their response was not an earthly fleshly response. It was a kingdom response that said, you know, we're going to be countercultural and we're going to pray for and love our enemies. We're going to love our enemies. Can you imagine? We're going to love our enemies. And maybe you're thinking, well, which ones, which enemy, all of them, well, certainly God doesn't mean, yes, he does. With that person, he means them too. Whatever person you're thinking of right now, let's just make this real for a second. Whoever you're, is coming to mind right now that you've given yourself permission to not love, God's saying you get to love them. In fact, you must 
love them. Jesus saying, are you hearing the words that I'm saying? Are you listening to what I'm saying? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. See, it's too easy for us church to, to let ourselves off of the hook. Now that doesn't mean that we, we ignore the pain that we would walk through. But I know this, that Jesus is sufficient. He is all that we need to minister to the brokenness and the hurting places in our lives as well. But then he says, this is what I'm asking of you. Love your enemies. Love the people that you have decided. I don't have to love them. Or I don't have to pray for them. Do good to those who hate you. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Exactly. See, the kingdom of God doesn't make sense because it's the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of man. It's not our rules, it's his rules. Bless them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If we could adopt this into not just our thinking, but into our behavior, the world would look very different. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. And then finally today, walk humbly. Walk humbly. He ends with these words. Walk humbly before your God. Why? Why do we have to do justice or do justly love mercy? And then why do we need the humility part of it? See, we come humbly before God and ask him to show us where we're not doing the first two right. God, I need to humbly come before you and ask, Lord, where am I not doing justly? And where am I not loving mercy? Where are these things taking place in my life? We have to get our hearts and minds before God. We have to get our hearts and minds before God. We have to admit that sometimes we get it wrong. We have to admit that sometimes we're a part of the problem. We have to admit that sometimes we believe the lie. We, that, that we've believed the things that the enemy has told us. See, and, and you might go, well, I haven't believed the lie. I, at least I don't think I've believed the lie. And it's not that I want to believe a lie. No, no, none of us want to believe a lie, but that's the way lies work. That's the way that the enemy structures them. He makes them enticing. He makes them seem palatable so that we'll buy into it. See, we know that the opposite of humility is pride. In Luke 18, Jesus shares a story and he says uh, that he goes into to the temple to, to worship. And there he sees a Pharisee who's praying this prayer that says, God, I thank you. I'm not like that sinner. I'm not like that sinner over that tax collector. And thank you that I'm not like other people, like, like, the, like, like criminals and vagrants. And I, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like them. But then Jesus points out the tax collector who's over in the corner praying, saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus's statement in Luke 18 is this, that of the two, it was the man who cried out, have mercy on me. That was justified. There's that word again, just. He was justified before God because he came in humility. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then when we walk humbly before our God, that he will lovingly point out the places 
where we need to be transformed. James 4, 6 through 7, he gives, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves and listen to this church, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee. I've read this, uh, this admission right here. I've read this passage wrong my whole life. Because I thought, you know what? If I submit myself to God and I get filled with the spirit, I can resist the devil. And it's this act of force or will. But to read it in this light is to say this, when I walk humbly for, for God, that he will illuminate the lies of the enemy. And I can go, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. That's a lie. And so the point that I resist is the lie. I say, I'm not believing the lie. And then the enemy has no place that he gives up and says, I can't get through. Read the book of Job. God says, hey, try it out. See if you can get him to break. But Job's righteousness leads him to a place that he never denies God. In our humility, God gives us the wisdom and the insight to recognize the lies of the devil and say no. So here's what God's asking. He's asking us to do justice, to do justly. He's asking us to love mercy, not just to be merciful, but to love the act of walking out mercy to, to being a merciful people and then to walk humbly before him so that we always come back to a place to say, God, would you check my heart? Would you make sure that I am where I'm supposed to be? Let's pray together. Lord, today, as a church, as your people, we come before you and we ask that you would search our hearts. We humbly bow before you today and ask, Lord, that you would expose any places where we are out of line with you, where we have not done justly, where we have not loved mercy and where we have not walked humbly. God, we ask that you would forgive us and Lord, that you would give us the wisdom and the strength and the understanding that we need to walk forward with you. To have an impact in the world, Lord, to be a prophetic witness of your love and your mercy and your grace and your transforming power in the world around us. Not just in word, but in deed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to invite you as we close today to join us starting tomorrow for three days of prayer, fasting, and lament uh, with our Foursquare family. Our denomination has called uh, our, our churches, uh, our pastors called you to three days of seeking the Lord in prayer and fasting and lament. Uh, there's gonna be a, a link that's available. It's already available on our website where you can sign up for prayer emails. It'll be going out Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week. Uh, and then on Wednesday evening at 5 p.m., there's going to be an online uh, live prayer service that the president of our denomination, Randy Remington, will be hosting along with a number of other leaders and pastors. And I want to invite you to join and be a part of that 5, 5 p.m. on Wednesday uh, you can go to thriveglendora.org and the link will be there. You can watch right there on our online church platform. Uh, and this is an opportunity for us as the church to do really the most important thing that we can do first 
is to come before the Lord and pray and to seek his face and to humble ourselves before him so that he can heal our land. And so I invite you to be a part of that. Please join us again next week as well. Feel free to invite someone to join you uh, for online church. It was great having you with us today. God bless you.